Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the true story of a successful contractor his beautiful, privileged wife, and a fiery affair with another woman that spins out of control. There is an addictive quality to lust and love. You obsess about the person, you feel like you can't live without them, and they found that with each other. It's a tale of Texas-sized ambition, untamable desire, and a cold, calculated murder. This killing was so horrific, so sexual in its nature. Clearly, he had to be a twisted, perverse person inside. Beware. Extreme passion can lead to shocking consequences. In 1981, North Dallas, Texas is known for its Tony suburbs. Its streets are lined with idyllic, custom-built homes owned by affluent families. You never know what's going on behind the, the walls of the house, but as you drive down the street, you certainly would, would think that this is a, a home of the American dream. Larry, his wife Joy, and their 11-year-old son are among the wealthy families living in North Dallas. Larry was sort of a man's man. He rode motorcycles. He was a nice-looking guy. He looked successful. He dressed well. He had the Texas appearance. Joy's a very beautiful woman. Carried herself very well. She had a lot of class. She had simple, elegant taste. She just had that sort of je ne sais quoi. I'm comfortable in my skin. She had a presence about her. Uh, not only was she attractive, but she was a lady. Larry and Joy fit right in with the affluent North Dallas society. And for Joy, 
it's the only life she's ever known. Joy was from a family that had done extremely well. Her father and mother had come from East Texas, a sort of working class farm background, and her father, he had really made it. And Joy had grown up very privileged. If she wanted something, she had it. But Larry comes from a more modest background. His adult success is a whole new world for him. His family had not achieved the status that Joy's father had. But they did come from somewhat different backgrounds, although they did live in the same area of Dallas. Larry has a prosperous business building luxury custom homes in the area. He and Joy work as a team. Larry handles the construction, while Joy designs the high-end interiors. Larry seemed to just be one of those people filled with ambition. He had a talent for it, but you do have to have the financial support to build spec houses, and he didn't have that until he got married to Joy. Her dad introduced Larry to the business, and I think Larry kind of started from the ground up working as a carpenter. Even though Larry and Joy got their start with family support, they've always worked hard to maintain their upscale lifestyle. To a casual observer, it looks as if they have it all. But behind closed doors, there are growing tensions that no one gets to see. Larry seemed to become much more controlling of Joy. He was very critical of her. According to the friends that knew Joy well, she seemed to retreat and seemed to be fearful when Larry was around. She seemed to guard her words. She wasn't her normal, effervescent person that they knew. Joy seemed to experience Larry as devaluing. She was intimidated by him. There was something about the dynamic between the two of them that got her to feel inadequate as a woman. Larry has developed a reputation for his well-built, upscale custom homes. But when it comes to his performance on the job, that's not all he's known for. He had a passion for pleasing his clients. Joy's friends told me that he would flirt and charm the wives of couples that he built houses for. Joy began to be aware of that. I could see where he would be attractive to ladies. If you have the looks, you have the money. If you dress right, you look right, you act right. Attractive isn't just necessary looks, it's the whole package. And I think Larry probably had the whole package. Larry liked the fast-moving, fast-living kind of lifestyle. He was living the dream. Although publicly, Joy maintains her poise and charm, she seems to be aware that her husband's attention is focused elsewhere. She hides it well, but beneath the surface, her confidence is crumbling. I think Joy wanted to be loved. I think she wanted to be doted on and to be worshipped by Larry. And he had a roving eye. Joy really tried to compensate. She went to a plastic surgeon and got breast implants. But Joy's attempt to boost her physical appearance does little to recapture Larry's interest or enhance their love life. Joy probably felt very badly about herself that she wasn't enough of a woman to keep her husband's attention. 
that she had a bad marriage and all she wanted to be was happily married and have a traditional life. In 1982, Larry gets a contract to build a custom home for a successful doctor named Peter and his wife, Roseanne. They've just purchased a plot of land in the heart of North Dallas, where they envision building their dream home. Peter was a doctor, very up and coming, very high in demand. They wanted a home built by one of the best custom home builders in North Dallas, and that was Larry. As a stay-at-home mom, Peter's wife, Roseanne, is left to handle the details of their new house. Roseanne was a nurse and a very warm, beautiful, loving, voluptuous woman. Just very appealing. She had married Peter and they had come down from the Northeast. She hated Dallas. She hated the heat. She had a warm, loving, extended family up in the Northeast and she missed them. She kind of felt stuck here. If you're being moved against your will and you're not near your family, you're not near anything familiar, you're not near anyone or anything that you love, it creates a sense of isolation, of loneliness, of depression. Not long after construction begins, Larry asks Roseanne to have lunch with him to discuss how things are progressing. Larry began to pick up that Roseanne was unhappy. He was feeling like, is she upset with me? Is she upset with the work? Am I not doing something? It does sound like Larry was very plugged in emotionally to Roseanne for whatever reason. She apparently talks about her marriage and that things are not going well, she's miserable, and he was also miserable in his marriage. He and Joy had started fighting, arguing. As the conversation turns more personal, it becomes clear that there's an intense chemistry between them that's undeniably tempting. Roseanne was vulnerable, she wasn't happy. And here you find this very seductive, charming man who's paying you a lot of attention. That's very appealing, and I'm sure it was something she wanted to explore. I think from that very first lunch, Larry and Roseanne very quickly fell into a very passionate sexual relationship. They could spend time at her house while Peter was at work. He was able to see her without being worried that it was inappropriate because he's building a house for her. To escape her troubled marriage, Joy has been spending much of her time taking care of their son and establishing her new window treatment business. At this point, friends were very aware that Joy and Larry's marriage was on the rocks. They kind of always seem to be in cars going in different directions. As the affair between Larry and Roseanne grows more intense, they steal every moment they can to indulge their desires. The sex and the lust was a disinhibitor. And once all that chemistry is going on, it's like being a drug addict. You just want more of that. 
And so the sex, the feel good, who doesn't want that? And they found that with each other. It became an antidote for Roseanne. It was an antidote to her feeling depressed and displaced. And for Larry, this helped him feel noticed and excited about life again. Roseanne's change in mood does not go unnoticed by her husband, Peter. She's happier than she's been in months. He suspects his wife is keeping secrets. Meanwhile, Peter and Larry have become acquaintances. On a hunting trip together, Peter comes dangerously close to discovering the truth. Peter confided in Larry that he was concerned that Roseanne was seeing somebody. And of course, she was. She was seeing Larry. But Larry assured him that no, that wasn't the case, that Roseanne loved him and everything was fine. With Peter's suspicions averted, Larry can continue his passionate rendezvous with Roseanne, though it won't take long before the truth is discovered, and it will lead them all into a tangled web of jealousy, greed, and murder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 1982, luxury home builder Larry is hired by prominent Dallas doctor Peter and his wife Roseanne to build a new house to suit their upper-class lifestyle. With both their marriages suffering... 
Larry is putting in extra work hours to make sure Roseanne, in particular, is happy with the services. Larry thought Roseanne was a really attractive, full of life woman. Whenever he spoke to me about Roseanne and how much he liked her and admired her, it was obvious that he had deep feelings. I think he really fell for her. For the first time, maybe, he found someone he could confide in. It wasn't just about the conquest. Roseanne confided in her sister that she had met someone she was in love with. He was really nice and treated her very, very well. It was like a combination of the lust, the excitement, the secrecy that almost got them to be addicted to one another. If Joy is aware of Larry's infatuation with Roseanne, she doesn't betray her emotions. She is so private. She kept things to herself. But I'm sure Joy couldn't help but notice how her husband was when she was around. She has such a need to keep up a facade that it feels so shameful to really confess to somebody what's truly going on in her life. The problem with that is that she never gets any resolution. She never resolves the anger. She never puts the situation in perspective. As the affair intensifies, Larry and Roseanne have a harder time keeping their sexual encounters hidden. Peter becomes increasingly convinced that Roseanne is, in fact, involved with another man. Little does he know, it's Larry. They did a pretty good job of keeping it secret for several months, but Peter began to get suspicious. His wife was distant. They weren't having an intimate relationship. He suspected that his wife was seeing someone else, but he didn't know who. Peter is a successful doctor, and he's used to being in charge. He contacts a private investigator to find out if his wife is really cheating. So hired this gentleman to basically follow her. He saw Roseanne with Larry a couple of times. So came back to Peter and said, look, I think she is having an affair and it's with your builder. To find out that not only is his wife having an affair, but she's having an affair with Larry. So I'm sure he was feeling duped, naive, angry. Peter was shocked and furious. He had just confided in Larry of his concerns, and Larry had told him that you know, everything was fine and that Roseanne loved him. Here this man is building a home for him. But before Peter can act, Roseanne makes the first move. There's months of this very passionate relationship that gets to the point where Roseanne can't stand it anymore. She has to move out. Her marriage is over. There is an addictive quality to lust and love. You obsess about the person. You feel like you can't live without them. And it sounds like Larry and Roseanne both had that towards each other. It's been more than three months since Larry and Roseanne's first lunch together. Driven by their passion, they each decide to separate from their spouse. Roseanne takes her son and moves into a home in Richardson, a nearby suburb. Larry moves out of the house he shares with Joy, closes their joint bank account, 
and moves into an apartment of his own. Joy is very upset. She really doesn't have enough money to provide for her and her child. And she doesn't want to go to her parents and ask for money. But there's obviously embarrassment and anger and not knowing what she's going to do. There was a level of greed in Joy. It was probably rightfully her money as well as Larry's. Joy didn't want to lose any of it. The fact that some other woman was going to get her money and that Larry was spending her money on another woman, that was not something she was willing to accept. And I think she got more furious as time went on, but it wasn't her nature to show that. I think she looked at it like, this is a company they built together. If they got divorced financially, that was gonna hurt. This was never about love and honor. It was, in my mind, about dollars. Joy maintains her usual cool exterior, hiding any evidence of emotion from the people who think they know her best. She doesn't confide in anybody that I ever found, but she begins thinking about how she is going to get her husband back. Peter, the other scorned spouse, takes a more proactive approach. Roseanne often returns to her former home to pick up her mail when Peter's working. Guessing that she might use the phone, Peter installs a phone tap, hoping to learn more about his wife's illicit affair. From this, he gets an earful. There were two lovers talking, so there wasn't any doubt after that, and he was furious, I'm sure out of his mind. This was the love of his life, the mother of his child. Still determined to do what he can to get Roseanne back, he decides to seek an ally. He had met Joy before and went to see her, took the recording and, and played it for her, expecting her to have the same kind of reaction that he had, which was rage. Joy was very stoic, said almost nothing, showed no emotion at all. Is that the reaction most women want to have? Absolutely not, but that was the reaction she had. Larry, Joy, Peter and Roseanne are caught up in a volatile mix of jealousy, lust and rage. And soon, events will be set in motion that will lead to a shocking and horrific crime. Suburban Dallas home builder Larry is involved in an ongoing affair with his client, Roseanne. Larry has separated from his wife, Joy, and Roseanne has taken her son and left her husband, Peter. Now, four months after the affair began, there are no longer any secrets. After some do-it-yourself investigating by Peter, everyone is now well aware of the extramarital relationship. It was pretty obvious that Larry was in love with Roseanne, and Roseanne was in love with Larry, and very open to her family about it. They wanted to go to the next step, which meant to leave both Peter and Joy in, in Larry's case. That was a conscious decision on our part to spend more time together. In June 1983, when Roseanne files for divorce from Peter, she takes an even more extreme step. She files for divorce. She takes their son, who's then four years old, 
And in the divorce, she asked for full custody. Roseanne was expressing her anger towards Peter, too, in wanting full custody because she's basically making the statement, you're never around, so I'm going to take full custody of my child. While Roseanne and Peter deal with the details of their separation, Joy's cool exterior is being challenged by Larry and Roseanne's brazen behavior. Larry's parents lived in the neighborhood, so Roseanne came over there some, so she would be seen in the neighborhood, and that would get back to Joy, and she didn't like that, who would? Her husband's showing up in the neighborhood with the shiny new girlfriend. Now that Larry has moved out, he and Roseanne have the freedom to openly express their passion for each other. Larry and Roseanne now have this new freedom. They've gone from a clandestine affair to leaving their partners and having all of this freedom. They could be with each other now whenever they wanted to be. They were obsessed with each other. The sex was good. The romance was good. It was like a mini honeymoon. She was very enamored of him. I think a lot of it was his charm. If he was interested in you, he would really focus in on you. But Larry and Roseanne can't fully leave behind their old lives. Roseanne knows about Peter's efforts to have her followed and record her conversations. Peter was still very upset. They had filed for divorce, and it was clear it was going to be a very contentious divorce, fighting over the child. And, you know, I think Roseanne was pretty concerned. Roseanne is even more unsettled by the strange things that begin to happen. Somebody broke into the home. She came home one night, and the back window had been broken, and the door was unlocked. She believed somebody had broken in. Roseanne worries that she and her son are in danger, but in her wildest imagination, she could never predict the horror that she is about to encounter. I think she might have feared somebody snooping around the house to see who she's with. I think she might have feared issues of stalking, but she could have had a double lock on that door, and I think the outcome would have been the same given the facts that we know. It's mid-afternoon on October 4th, 1983. Around 3.30, the doorbell rings at Roseanne's home. She has just brought her four-year-old son home from ice skating lessons and put him in his room to nap. She answered the door and there was a man with flowers. She smiled. She never got the chance to ask anything else. The man pulls a 25 automatic out and says, back up and shut up. And, and he comes in, closes the door, and he puts the flowers down by the door. He takes her down the hallway to the bedroom, past the little boy's room. He sees the little boy sleeping, takes her into her bedroom. Shut the door, had her take the robe off. She didn't have any clothes underneath because she was getting ready to take a bath. Panicked and aware of her little boy sleeping just across the hall from her room, Roseanne does as she is told. Got her to the bed. Sexually assaulted her. Uh, put Kleenex uh, down her throat to the point where it had to be removed with forceps. After attempting to strangle her, the man shoves a pillow over her head and fires two shots. 
The little boy thinks he hears a hammer. In the next room, it uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a hammer. So he heard the shots, you know, and uh, he came out of the room and found her. Roseanne's young son wanders into his mother's room and finds her alone and unconscious. But it's not until shortly after 5 p.m. he manages to dial his father's number. We just wonder what on earth does a child go through in, in three hours with his mother tied up, and she's still fighting to breathe with the tissue in her mouth and the traumatic head injury. She's still fighting for life. You know, it's just hard to even think about what that child went through. Peter is on the phone when he's interrupted by a call from his son. He said, there's something wrong with mom. He said, well, go get her and tell her to come on the phone. So he uh, went back and said that there's something coming out of her mouth. And the dad, uh, he was on the phone to his mother, and he said, told his mother to call the police, and he was on his way to Roseanne's house. Paramedics arrive to find a gruesome scene in the bedroom. Roseanne is unconscious, but still breathing. They rush to get her to the hospital. Detectives get there just as her near lifeless body is loaded into the ambulance. So it was bad. I mean, you knew it was bad. Seeing her, seeing the scene, it was, uh, it was gonna be a long night. As detectives begin to assess the crime scene, some of the key people in Roseanne's life arrive at the home. Peter arrives at the scene and the little boy runs out of the house and the police are there just trying to sort things out. And somebody says, my husband's here. So I turned to the doctor and said, you know, we're gonna need to talk to you. And he said, uh, I wanna to talk to my lawyer. It's not something you expect. But Peter isn't the only one concerned. It's not long before Larry arrives. He's been calling Roseanne all afternoon and could not reach her. One of the investigators come in and said, uh, the victim's boyfriend's outside. I said, what, are you kidding? What the hell are you talking about? I said, I just met the, the husband. The detectives begin to question everyone present, beginning with Larry. He said, the doctor did it. You know that, right? The doctor did it, referring to Peter. I said, okay, well, this detective, you're going to have to go with him. And it's about the same time Peter comes back. He had made a phone call to his lawyer. And he comes up and he said, you know, Larry did it right. So it was, a, it was like it was a convenient package right there where probably had the person who did it. Roseanne has been the victim of a violent crime. And the police are looking at the two men in her life, Peter and Larry, as the prime suspects. But what investigators can't imagine is the unbelievable secret behind this shocking act. October 5th, 1983. Dallas wife and mother, Roseanne, has been brutally raped, strangled, and shot twice in the head. She's kept on life support in Presbyterian Hospital as detectives begin questioning their prime suspects. Peter, Roseanne's soon-to-be former husband, and Larry, her lover, are on top of the list. They've got an estranged husband who wants to talk to his lawyer first, which obviously that draws some suspicion. And then Larry arrives, so they know uh, there's an affair going on. 
Detectives examined the horrific crime scene. You saw the pillows with blood and, and shell casings, and she had vomited on the floor. It was a directed attack at her and not at the child. So the logical focus was who had a reason to want to hurt her? She's a nurse, a nice woman. I mean, she doesn't have a bunch of enemies in the world. The one person she had made unhappy was her husband. Detectives said something strange about Peter's reaction to his wife's brutal attack. His alibi is that he was at work and asleep at his desk that afternoon when the killing occurred. I thought that Peter's reaction was a little different. Everybody acts different in these circumstances. Homicides bring out the worst and the best in people. I was uh, a little bit distracted by Peter's reaction. He was a successful person, no violent history or anything like that, but he was the logical first suspect. He had the motive, and some of the things he did drew attention to him. What was puzzling about Peter is, is that it was almost like it was adversarial when it didn't need to be. Roseanne is pronounced dead two days after the attack. The case is ruled a homicide. Peter and Larry both agree to take a polygraph test. Basically, they were asked, did you kill her? Questions have to be pretty specific in a polygraph. But they're not alone. Larry's wife, Joy, is also brought in for questioning. Following her attorney's advice, she volunteers to take a lie detector test. Joy, when you first meet her, you let your guard down. I mean, she's very approachable, very calm, very collected. I actually was impressed with her. Impressed compared to how the other potential suspects had reacted. All three passed the test. The trail goes cold. There wasn't any obvious suspects to develop. There weren't any fingerprints at the scene. And of course, DNA in those days was in its stages of infancy. There wasn't any physical evidence linking anybody to this particular crime scene. The case took a parallel at that point, parallel tracks. One, did somebody completely unknown to Roseanne kill her? Or two, was it still possible for one of the obvious suspects to have done it? They eventually determined that Peter is not responsible for the vicious murder of his wife. I think what really changed my mind about Peter was that he really loves his son, and he would have never gone in there and killed her with even the remote chance of his son finding her. We made the determination it had to be a stranger. Detectives are left with no suspects, no evidence, no leads. The only thing they know for sure is that whoever committed this violent, sadistic murder is still on the loose. Of course, that is very unsettling. It feels like there's somebody out there getting ready to kill again. The Richardson police were very baffled by it. Two years pass. After a surprising and brief reconciliation between Larry and Joy, Larry files for divorce in the spring of 1986. On June 14th, Joy unexpectedly asks him to meet her at their family ranch in Kaufman County. He was surprised because they, they didn't do much together. And so that was really out of character. He takes a friend and is going to meet her, but she never shows up. Instead, Larry and this friend, they finally get fed up and they drive back toward Dallas. 
As they drive away from the ranch down a long dirt road, they see an unfamiliar truck stopped ahead. Shots ring out. Larry hears the terrifying sound of breaking glass all around him. Larry's unhurt, but his friend gets shot in the arm. Joy finally meets up with Larry later that evening. She told Larry at that time, I don't want you around me. Somebody's trying to kill you, I don't want anything to do with it. Larry started to get suspicious because she had been the one that had wanted to meet him out there. He had thought maybe she wanted to talk about a reconciliation, but it just seemed that her behavior was very strange. He talks to the detective at Richardson Police and, and says, do you think any of this could have anything to do with Roseanne's murder? He didn't know it was connected or not, but he thought I should know about it. I didn't see any connection, but I told him, let me follow up with the authorities in Kaufman County. They thought it was some hunters or some possible narcotics involved where he stumbled into it and they shot at it. Larry doesn't just shrug it off, though. He's starting to worry. He's starting to feel like somebody may be out to get him. With Roseanne's murder still unsolved and someone apparently wanting to shoot him, Larry's fears begin to grow. Who would want him dead? Nearly two more years pass, and the case remains unsolved. Detectives are at a standstill until Larry calls them with some surprising new information. Larry calls me in the spring of 1988 and says, I got this crazy woman calling me, saying she knows who killed Roseanne. When the woman calls again, she reveals that a man named Bill was responsible for the murder. Larry convinces the woman to contact the Richardson police. Her name is Carol. If a murder case isn't solved within a week, it's probably not going to be. And this thing went five years, and it was stone cold. Then Carol comes forward. Detectives are skeptical, but meet with Carol anyway. They're shocked by what she says. I said, you're Carol Garland, right? She said, oh, you're pretty good. But she said, do you know who else I am? And I said, no. And she said, I'm Joy's sister. Carol then explains that the person behind Roseanne's murder is her sister, Joy. According to Carol, Joy hired someone to kill Roseanne. With this new shocking information, an elaborate tale of greed and foul play finally begins to unravel. But will Carol's bizarre tale prove to be true? Could Joy really be the mastermind of the sadistic rape and murder of her husband's lover? For five years, Roseanne's merciless killing has remained a mystery until Joy's sister, Carol, comes forward to reveal an elaborate scheme behind the murder. They were highly skeptical of her initially. The story was so fantastic and so convoluted and they had a hard time believing her. Detectives will need Joy herself to confirm her sister's crazy tale. On two separate occasions, Joy agrees to meet Carol unaware that Carol is wearing a wire. And whether you realize or not, we're all in big trouble, you included. You're not just invisible in this. So I'd like to get out of it. 
Hey, Joey, I didn't want to murder Larry, and I certainly didn't want to kill that woman. I didn't even know she was dead. She makes remarks that are very self-incriminating. And that's how the case becomes obvious that it, it was Hitman that did it, not somebody that was close to her that did it. We had enough to arrest her. And that's when I went to the DA's office and said, I'd like to get a warrant and get her. And we did. On May 25th, 1988, Joy is arrested and brought to the Richardson Police Station. At the end of the room on the table, I had the tape ready. And I said, Joy, we've got you. She said, what do you mean? And he played a little bit of the recording. So she knew he had something. And he also had a recording running. And she said, well, I don't need to hear that. And turn that recording off. And, and I'll talk to you. Through further investigation, detectives learn how Joy went to her father's handyman to find someone who would take care of Roseanne. This new information leads detectives down a surprisingly long trail of hired hands that lead them to a man named Andy. On December 20th, 1988, Andy is brought into the Richardson Police Department for questioning. During the interrogation, police get the final break they've been waiting years for. He put his head down, he looked at the wall, and said, Mo, I did it. I've never been so surprised in my life. I wasn't expecting it. I had no idea he was the actual killer. I think just from the way the killing was done, it had to be a thrill kill. This killing was so horrific and so sexual in its nature that Clearly, he had to be a twisted, perverse person inside to do what he did to this girl. Two years pass while the prosecution builds their case. On May 14, 1990, Joy is finally ordered to appear in court, charged with murder. But she is nowhere to be found. She didn't show up. Her lawyer, he was very surprised. He expected her to be there. He had no idea she was gonna run. For the next year, Joy is able to frustrate and evade authorities. It looks as if she's gotten away with murder. But then, in March of 1991, there's a break in the case. Joy is caught over 5,000 miles away in the south of France. So we were waiting on pins and needles. Well, then we got the call, they got her. The day she was caught, she tried to kill herself. Uh, I, I think she was absolutely determined not to be tried for this case and not to face the consequences of this case. I think Joy was in denial that she was going to be held accountable for this murder. She can't have that. But French authorities refused to extradite her until Dallas County prosecutors agreed not to pursue the death penalty. When the proper assurances are given, Joy is finally released from French custody and sent back to Dallas to stand trial. In August 1994, almost 11 years after Roseanne's murder, Joy is finally brought before a judge and jury. Not counting the jury selection, the actual trial lasted about three weeks. But the jury was out a couple hours. The jury finds Joy guilty of capital murder. 
Joy's reaction to the verdict was stoic. She showed no emotion at all, which was really typical of her. It was agreed. She didn't want to lose that money. She, she became obsessed with it. And it drove her to the point where she uh, had another human being's life taken. Joy has never, that I know of, expressed regret or remorse in a public way to Roseanne's family or to Larry or to anybody else for what she's done. I think she not only wanted to kill this woman, but to humiliate her. And not only that, I mean, she knew she had a little boy. Thank goodness he was asleep. I mean, this is a mother. I mean, it's unforgivable to me.